You're listening to the Ending Human Trafficking Podcast. This is episode 297. Welcome back. My name is Sandy Morgan. Producing this podcast dedicated to studying the issues, being a voice, and making a difference takes a team. We're saying another goodbye this time to Idalis Moscoso, who has served as blog editor, organizer, wonderful website content provider. She's going off to Italy for grad school, and we wish her well. And we are welcoming on board Nadia Sosa. When I asked Nadia recently what her favorite episode has been during her onboarding, she quickly responded, number 28. I immediately knew what she was talking about, and I want everyone to revisit it with us. You'll be listening now to Dr. Amelia Frank in episode 28, Stop Blaming the Victim. The bonus is that you will also get to hear Dave again throughout this interview. Okay, now let's get to the episode. Here's me introducing our guest. Let me introduce Amelia Frank Meyer. She has been the CEO of Anu Family Services since 2001. That's a child welfare agency located in Wisconsin and Minnesota. And for those of you who listened to the last podcast, we were, were talking about not calling these kids terms that put them into juvenile delinquency, but finding the opportunities and making opportunities by giving them designations that place them squarely in a child welfare context. And that's exactly what Amelia does. She is an advanced practice social worker, a licensed independent social worker. She has a master's degree in social work from University of Minnesota and a master's degree in sociology from Illinois and a graduate certificate from the University of Minnesota. We are very happy to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Well, when you did your workshop for us at the Ensure Justice Conference, the title of your workshop was Stop Blaming the Victim. And we talked about the kinds of baggage that come with terms like teen prostitute and child prostitute and what that does so that people say things that are really just unreasonable, a clinician that says, well, the first time she was forced, but after that, it's her choice. Or, well, if she's dressed like that, what does she expect? So we've, we have lots of, of evidence that people do blame the victim. And we have people who are trying to be part of the solution that even blame the victim because she doesn't follow through on what we, we advised her to do. And So what we want to hear from you today is why we shouldn't blame the victim. What is her experience? What can we do to better understand the victim? Well, I am just struck with this group of girls, how much it reminds me of the Stockholm Syndrome and the work that's been done around that, where victims actually 
identify with their abusers as a protective mechanism. It's a, it's a normal, healthy brain's response to captive trauma. And so when I hear words like teen prostitute, I, I get a little cringed um, hearing those because there is an implied meaning that it's a trade that is voluntary or chosen or that she just wanted to leave. She could and clearly does not really emphasize the impact of trauma and fear. And so there's so many things we can relate to this kind of experience for girls in terms of kidnapped victims, prisoners of war. I mean, the Elizabeth Smart, the Patty Hearst, the experience of folks who are kept not in their will eventually stop trying to leave because of fear and trauma. And so this is something that that we do as human beings when when we're in these life or death situations, which in many cases this is for these girls, we find ways to survive. And so using terms like that, that implies some level of the profound impact of here. You'll hear the same kinds of things with battered women. Well, why didn't they just leave? Because there is a very pervasive, technique of fear and humiliation and degradation that is used to make sure that they feel like they can't leave, that they might die or someone close to them might die or something terrible would happen to them. And so this is a a kind of brainwashing or occulting that goes on to help to alter the, the thinking and the ability and will of folks so that they stay in these environments out of fear. They stay in these environments as a matter of survival. So when we were ending our last podcast, we were citing some of the problems that these kids have that are brought out of being commercially sexually exploited. And besides the sexually transmitted diseases, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, seems to be one of the common factors. And you just mentioned the trauma associated with this, with rape. Can you speak to that? Well, a lot of the work that I do in child welfare centers around loss, grief and loss, and responding to trauma from that perspective. And that is what I think about when I think about these these girls in terms of the trauma aspect and 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 what girls are left with as a result of this. And you talked about some of the physical and health implications, and and those are quite serious in in many, many cases and have lifelong impacts. But the the other pieces are the incredible grief that comes around the losses. And I'll just name a few off the top of my head, really not having intensive experience in in this area, but knowing how closely it relates to the the girls that I work with as well, the the loss of innocence, the loss of of being a kid, the loss of time that has gone by and what you have missed in your family life, in your own community and with your siblings, the loss of respect, the loss of dignity, the loss of human relationships that have been damaged through this time. And these are things that in many situations are unrecoverable. And so feeling like it's not, it is not only the experience at that moment that one has endured, the fear, the 
pain, the humiliation. It's not only that, but it is all the things that were supposed to be there for a 12-year-old that were supposed to be in that space that were replaced by those things. So what was was playing, connecting, learning how to interact with with boys in a healthy and innocent way, family connections, having your parents feel proud of you, academic achievement, the experience of going to the pool with your friends at the summer, all the stuff that was supposed to be in that space that is taken. Mm. And that, the loss of those human connections, the loss of that experience, the loss of that dignity, the loss of that respect is so profound. That, that in itself is incredible trauma. And then when you think about what got put in place of those things that are supposed to be there for a normal, healthy, growing experience for a young girl and what they had to do instead, that trauma is so complex that it will have pervasive effects. Wow. When you start making a list of the, the loss, the loss of, of those kinds of childhood memories around family vacations and, and going swimming. And I think of a, of a little girl's first school dance and yeah. she's supposed to learn how to, to wait to be asked to dance. Yeah. Wow. Learning to bake with your mom, riding a bike, your pet. I mean, you name it. It's, that, that wondrous experience when it's done in a healthy way, that wondrous experience of childhood, and all that wonder, all that innocence, just completely robbed. So when you talk about rape, it is the raping of childhood. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting, too, when we think about the list that you just mentioned, Amelia. Sandy, I think back to the topic we talked about on our last podcast about the importance of the terminology that we utilize because many of the things that Amelia's just listed here would be could be substantially different if we use different terminology and how we describe the situations that these young children have been in because many of these things like the loss of respect and you know would just be very different if our society had different language to process how we have dialogue about this mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what I've just been really taken back by, I guess, is since being at the conference with you, Sandy, and presenting, I've come back home to my my home community in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, and I've just started to learn what's happening and what's going on and what are the services and was really hoping to come back home and find that somebody was taking care of this and I could go back to my child welfare experience (laughs) instead I'm just finding how much needs to be done there and how overlapping these areas are that that these are our girls and I'm working with girls who have found themselves in traumatic situations in a lot of cases dealing with their losses and they're so vulnerable to this kind of experience and, and so vulnerable to this because of this basic human need to belong. It's the same kind of thing that attracts our, our young men into gangs and there's this that missing component when you have trauma with a lack of, of healthy human connections with adults when you're a child, the vulnerability that that creates for our youth is very frightening to me. And, and what's really been taking me aback in learning about these services is that people do not discuss these girls. And I have talked to folks at the, you know, in many different levels of, of the system and but 
We don't talk about them as children in need of protection. They are children in need of protection. This is, to me, akin to starving children stealing a loaf of bread and incarcerating them instead of trying to alleviate their hunger. I mean, I think people would just be outraged at that. I mean, would, I think society would be outraged that you have starving children who stole food for survival and, in fact, were incarcerated and labeled and re-victimized because of that act of survival. So we need to, to reframe how we see these children. They're looking, in, instead of for bread because they're hungry, they're looking for belonging. They are hungry for the feeling of belonging. That's right. And when you, a child in need of protection is one who, in most cases, and I know there are some differences for some girls, but in most cases, do not have a healthy adult who is protecting their safety and well-being. And so it, it is, they cannot do that for themselves. They are children. And so they will find places to, to garner that protection. This is one, one of the things that happens. So how are we going to change that experience for children in need of protection? Well, I just think, you know, just really thinking of of them as children rather than I think when we start talking about a teen prostitute or girl prostitutes, that's a whole different thing that gets conjured up. They are children in need of protection and really thinking about, you know, I hear stories about, well, she was 15, so she was released to said was her uncle was really her pimp or what have you, would we release a a three-year-old in that same situation without really evaluating that adult's need and ability to keep that child safe? Because, in fact, these girls, in many cases, those who have experienced trauma or been victims of trauma, on the outside might be 15, but really they have not developed on the same kind of linear path as a child who's had different experiences. They are underdeveloped in a lot of ways, and they're stuck at many of those ages where that trauma happened. Okay. So then I look at this girl. I think I'm talking to a 15-year-old, but if I could see inside her mind, I'm really talking to an 11-year-old. That's right. Wow. Or a 6-year-old. And it's not all parts of her. Some parts are 15. Mm-hmm. But parts that were impacted by the trauma, including some of her thought processes, decision-making abilities, some of the emotional capacities. So what can we do when we encounter this 15-year-old besides put her in a safe place, which has been, for the most part, been identified as juvenile detention? Does that meet her emotional needs? <laughs> <laughs> Loaded question. Uh, sorry. <laughs> It's a, you know, I view a lot of these children through the lens of loss, right? So there is healing that needs to happen. So in talking to one rescued victim, she said, I, I don't, I don't think police should show up. I think an ambulance should show up wow. you know, to come get us that we, we have been really harmed. <laughs> and so we need treatment and healing. And so I think a lot about, um, you go to juvenile detention and you turn the key and you open it up and there's carpet and pink bedspreads and stuffed animals and we we start working on these we start grieving these intense losses and start to work on what those thinking patterns that that victims help to create to identify with their abuser for survival and so we start undoing some of that that kind of thinking and 
grieving some of these losses and treating these children like we understand what has happened, which is they have been, I don't care what they say. I don't care if they say it was willingly. You, they are children. They can't make a willing choice in that way. We know that about other laws of statutory kinds of things that children under 18 cannot these decisions for themselves. I don't care what comes out of their mouths. They don't have the capacity yet to do it. And they're victims of trauma. And so really understanding that these children need healing. They need safe space to grieve. They need our assistance in helping them to unravel and sort out what the heck has happened to them, how it happened, what it meant, what parts they want to heal and leave behind. Uh, what parts of them are resilient and uh, will be stronger that they can bring with them? And and what does this mean in terms of going forward? And that takes very special people to do that work who are deeply committed to understanding that the behaviors you will see from them are the result of trauma. So how do we create that kind of environment for a child? Is it even possible for us to do that? And And, and how much time is it going to take? Well, I've been working on that idea, Sandy. I'm not I'm not one to tell you things are impossible. You've come to the wrong person. <laughs> um, I'm more about how and when is it possible. And so I think there is a significant mind shift that needs to happen because there are laws in place to protect children in these ways, and there are funding streams in place to protect children. But if you start seeing them as criminals and juvenile justice problems who chose this, it's a lot different. And so shifting that thinking and understanding that these are victims of trauma who are children in need of protection changes the whole game. And so I think finding secure, safe ways to to keep these children safe from the threats that present themselves while we do some of this healing work is, is very possible. And I'm not sure exactly what that looks like, but I will tell you, I've talked with a lot of colleagues about that in terms of do these youth need a safe and secure locked facility in which they can do healing until they understand some of what's happened to them and are more open to some of the healing and and then have less restrictive environments where they could be a part of grieving their losses and experiencing a safe place to do that. So, so starting with a lockdown facility, basically. But that's very different than any that you've ever seen. Okay. Okay. So, and then how long do you think that, say, a 14-year-old who had gone through this would need in that kind of facility? I'm not really sure. And I think it would might be an experiment because I don't know. I know people are working on trying to make something like that happen, but they're at this point, it's, it's very much a, a hope. Right. And it might be different for every girl. Mm. I don't know that that's prescribed and I don't know that it's been tried, but I sure think we ought to start trying. And so more akin to a a cure healing facility rather than a juvenile lockdown. Okay. A secure healing facility. I think that this speaks to one of the challenges too, when we think about, of course, this it, whenever we talk about laws being broken, regardless who's doing them, the legal system's involved, and there are certain standards that need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is one of the things that Amelia just said is, you know, every person is different. Every situation is unique. And so it really is going to require all of us to be able to look at this through a lens of really looking at each person as a person versus just looking at a person as a as a number or a 
or uh, or just a you know a, a criminal report. And and Amelia, you talked about the special kind of person it takes to be there for this victim. Mm-hmm in the recovery process. And so what I'm beginning to see, and I've heard from what you do from Tina Feigl, from Karen Bergstrom at Olive Crest, that there is a movement to prepare foster parents for these kids. How do you see that as a placement alternative that will make a huge difference? And that's a big piece of what my involvement is, is that at a new family services, we're really focused on building healthy connections, healthy permanent connections for kids and are having great success at that. And so these kinds of kids are particularly in need of folks who understand trauma and grief and loss, which is what our foster parents are are intensively trained in. And so I think, you know, with another layer of understanding the circumstances that these children have gone through, so some additional training, but really a strong basis in trauma and grief and loss will be critical to understanding the healing that needs to happen here and how to guide that healing while creating safe environments. And I have met amazing people capable of creating sanctuary space for that kind of healing in their own home. I think one of the things that I want people to take away from listening to the Ending Human Trafficking podcast on a regular basis is that there is something we each can do. And It may not be to become the CEO to build that safe environment, that lockdown facility that's going to require all kinds of staff and and security measures, but it may be becoming a parent to one child. Absolutely, or a mentor. Or a mentor. Maybe not even in your home if you're not able, but a stable, constant mentor that we just know from research and our own good common sense that kids fare better when they're connected to loving, stable adults. We know this. And there's a lot more information on that on my website at www.anufs or a new ANU family services.org. So anufs.org. We talk about our grief and loss model there with Dr. Darla Henry. And we talk about some of the great outcomes we've seen when you can create that space for, for kids to do their grieving. And this, we'll put that website on our show notes too. Absolutely. Yeah, because we want people to to see that model. And even if you're not in that area, begin to to ask those questions and create space for that conversation in your community and bring experts like Amelia to help with the training for that, like we did at Insure Justice this year. The last question is before they become commercially sexually exploited children, they often were already in the system. They often had already been in some kind of foster care, some kind of group home. They had already been pulled from a toxic environment in their own community. So they they still have all the same grief and loss issues, it sounds like. So how do we do a better job of identifying those kids and doing special foster placement? Well, I think, you know, we have a a larger societal obligation to kids to say something when we see something that isn't right and to do our best Mm. to keep our eyes open and protecting and valuing children and looking them in the eye and saying hello when you pass them on the street and really, you know, voting and advocating and living in a way that respects children and values them for what they are instead of seeing them as problems. So I think just in general, that's important to do. And I believe that you are correct that 
so much of this comes from other trauma, early trauma, and, and so many of the kids we see, boys and girls, in foster care have come from environments of trauma, many of whom have been abused and neglected, often sexually abused, which just opens the door as a gateway to this more commercial kinds of abuse. And so we mentioned some of the things to do in terms of being a mentor, becoming a foster parent, or really take an active interest in finding ways to respect and value children, because we don't in a lot of ways in our society, and really opening our eyes. And I'll just close with a really quick story. A friend of mine just said she she went to see a circus play, and there were a bunch of youth groups there, and she took her kids there, and then shows up the stripper on the 50-foot 50 50 stripper pole and did a 15-minute dance scantily dressed on the pole and she just wanted to stand up and scream there are children here and it was billed as a children's show and lots of people were there as children and and nobody seemed to flinch nobody seemed to think there was anything wrong mm-hmm. with it and everything in her said what are we doing and so i i just invite folks to open their eyes a little bit more and take a look around at what our kids are seeing and what our kids are experiencing too and find all there are all sorts of ways to protect and engage children wow sounds like a big job and we are glad that you are on it Amelia well thank you appreciated my time and ability to talk a little bit with you about this thank you so much for listening to the ending human trafficking podcast I hope you enjoyed this rebroadcast and took away from the points made by Dr. Amelia Frank I look forward to seeing you again in two weeks